This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am your host, the writer of Mindframe, and the narrator of the chapters, David Moten. And with me, as always, in the studio is Brent Van Tassel, my producer and partner in crime in all things Mindframe. Um, this chapter is chapter five, and it is the last of the introductions of the main characters that we're going to rotate through. And it is the introduction to a character named Grim Bolivar. Uh, Grim lives in the future, the year 2136, and he is a member of uh, a house of people who help run um, the black market, as it were, sort of a, a friendly mafia of the future. And it's the story of him and his family and a shopping trip that he goes on, which uh, leads to some um, un unforeseen consequences. So give this one a listen. I hope you like Grimm as much as I do, and you'll see some extra facets to the world of Mindframe in this chapter. As always, if you're a fan of what you hear, you can join us at patreon.com backslash Mindframe podcast to uh, become a supporter. Um, it's one way that you can get the sit down episodes where we talk about things, but you can also get exclusive t-shirts and other things based on the level that you sign up for. And we are also a Podbelly original. So if you want to check out some great podcasting or uh, have some educational content about how, how to create your own podcasts, you can go to podbelly.com and find out more information there. So without further ado, I introduce you to the world of Grim Bolivar. Chapter 5, Grim Bolivar, 2136. But we'll be in there for hours, Uncle Grim. You'll freeze to death. You can't just sit here in the car, Elise said. She leaned forward, maximizing pitch and angle to emphasize her plea. She would touch his knee next, Grim thought. She'd do that when she was but a child, filled with sincere longing for something. Twist his pants into a nervous knot, touch his knee. The very adult Elise today was only playing at being sincere. But his family was not a family of sincerity. The Bolivar family was not one of straight lines, but of crooked angles ever askew, always hiding the true intersection of purposes. Grimm knew to look for the angle, the grift, the obfuscated manipulation in every situation, even one conspired by his darling niece about something as innocent as going into the plaza. Every interaction with Grimm's brother, his late father, his nephew, all of them were moves in a grand game. Every favor they did for you was somehow turned into a favor they did for themselves. Every concession was a chip to be called in later. Grimm saw the moves, understood how each player worked, had a catalog of weaknesses, desires, emotional states, but he didn't play it. He felt distaste at manipulating his family. His honesty was his strongest trait, and it was therefore his strength and weakness as a player of the game. His main family function was dealing with outsiders who were hostile. No guile needed there, merely threats and violence. Subterfuge wasn't called for when the tire iron was involved. So Grimm knew he was being played at by Elise, but he didn't know her endgame this morning. Didn't want to, so he tried not to play. First, Grimm said, this isn't a car, it is a limousine. Second, this limousine is quite capable of helping me avoid such a melodramatic fate as terminal environmental hypothermia while you shop. What are you going to do, watch people park and walk into the plaza all day, Nathaniel asked? This discussion is boring. Just come in and be done with it. Buy a damn book or something. Grimm held up the novel that was in his lap to indicate he didn't need to buy a damn book or something. Grimm noted that his nephew's mood was about to turn. It would do that. Grow from rosy to rotten in an instant. Grimm assessed both Nathaniel and Elise. 
their body language was indifferent to each other at the moment. Nathaniel peering out the window, Elise staring straight at Grimm. Whatever Elise was up to, Grimm's nephew wasn't party to it, but was irritable. Nathaniel, Grimm assumed, was upset due to the simple fact that he was unaccustomed to and uncomfortable with being told no. No, Grimm told Nathaniel. I'm going to sit in the car, drink my coffee, and read this book. He returned the tome in his lap, an old hardback. It was on the hard-to-find list after the purges, and he was glad to have secured a copy. It would make a nice addition to his collection, and so far it was one of the best pre-war American novels he'd ever read. It showed off the inequality and disparity between social classes and, oddly enough, ethnicities that was so prevalent before World Vote. What is it? Elise asked of the book. The question could have been part of her angle, part of how she planned to get Grimm to go into the plaza, but he doubted it. With intellectual pursuits, she was almost always honest. And though a player, Grimm knew that Elise was one of the few forces for good in their entire family. She was a godsend, the one thing that could anchor Grimm's nephew and keep him from being a Napoleonic little shit. Grimm held the book sideways so Elise could read the spine. Invisible Man? Never heard of it. What's it about? And please don't say an invisible man. People, Grimm said. That was the answer his mother always gave Grimm when he was a child. She read voraciously as mother, pre-war murder mysteries mostly, and when Grimm or Yale asked what her current book was about, it was always simply people. For years, it frustrated Grimm. He knew she was just being a smartass, which she was, but now as a man closer to 40 than 30, he knew she was 100% correct. People. How else do you sum up good storytelling but people? People living, people dying, people falling in and out of love, People getting revenge, being duped, playing the hero, hiding as cowards. It was all about people. Come in with us, Elise pleaded, finally touching Grimm's knee with her soft glove. I have something I want to show you, and no, it's not a bauble. Plus, there's supposed to be a new art shipment. She did the girl thing with lips pouty and upturned, eyes showing a broken soul that only compliance could mend. She was 20 now, but still summoned up the little girl when she needed to. Grim eyed Nathaniel and saw that his arms were folded and he was still looking out the window with a knotted brow. Elise and Nathaniel. Suddenly Grim was faced with two portraits of pouting. One was real, one fiction. But the facial muscles and postures were identical. Pouting would be an intimidating facial expression if not for the puffiness of the cheeks. The cheeks in a pout made the face look like a baby's face, which Grim supposed was the whole point. Give this poor, defenseless thing what it wants to appease it a call and response buried deep in our caveman code. When the lariat finally opened, and whatever was going to come through actually did come through, Grimm wondered how they would interpret a pout. Would a pout be threatening, based on the seriousness of the pout's forehead? Would it be sad and hearken them to babies? Then again, whatever came through might not have babies, and it probably wouldn't have a forehead. And who knows, maybe a furrowed brow to them might be how they smile, or laugh, or show extreme pain. Xenokinesthetics was a burgeoning theoretical field at the academy where people tried to predict facial expressions and body language of alien beings. It was a difficult field since humanity had such a limited idea of what the beings on the other side of the lariat would look, act, or think like. But here on Earth, Elisa's pout was fiction. She was joking about it, being coy. Her feelings were in no way hurt by Grimm's plan to stay back. But then again, Grimm realized... She wasn't a self-entitled, spoiled little shit like his nephew was. Grimm finally asked, Why on earth would either of you two give half a shit if I came into the plaza or not? 
Nathaniel shrugged and continued to look out the window into the parking lot, averting Grimm's eyes. Elise said, Nathaniel doesn't want to drag me along with him since he's meeting the boys. I'd ruin their panty jokes or something. That wasn't it. Elise didn't care about ruining Nathaniel's fun while shopping. Grimm knew she had a deeper angle, a more substantial reason to drag him into the plaza. But he gave up the fight. How big of an angle could she be running on getting him to come shopping with her for a few hours? She probably wanted someone to carry her bags and approve of how her new clothes fit. He sighed. She grinned. You know I hate this goddamn place, Grimm said. Elise leaned all the way forward and kissed him on the cheek, having won the argument. Grimm had no children, only two blood nephews from his brother Yale. And Elise wasn't blood, but she was to him. She was the daughter of their head groundskeeper and had lived with the family at Prospect since she was six. He was at all of her birthdays, her first days of school. Elise and Nathaniel were inseparable around the ground since the day she arrived. After nine years there, she had grown to become Nathaniel's great love. They'd been a couple for five years now. She had her way with everyone in the household. She had more raw charisma, maybe, than even his brother Yale. Grimm, a man famous for resisting 36 hours of physical and psychological torture at the hands of the McGleechy family, had no ability to resist Elise's most simple pout. They left the car, the driver helping them out one by one. Grimm slid the Ralph Ellison tome into an old canvas satchel his mother used to carry her books in, and Elise took Grimm's solid arm so she wouldn't slip, her ludicrously high heels thin as pencil lead on the rain-slicked pavement of the parking lot. This time of year, Southern California was always cold, mostly rainy, as pressure ridges were manipulated to make sure rain and sun hit the Central Valley when the agriculture called for it. Weather served no utilitarian purpose in the Los Angeles Basin, so it was often sacrificed for more important neighboring geographies. Global weather manipulation to feed the growing population of the Earth gave way to L.A. having a reputation as being the rainiest place on the West Coast. Elise fought off the rain and cold with a full-length dress and coat that harkened back to the war era, a fashion that had come around with the ladies in the past season. Nathaniel wore a tight-fitting olive drab suit with a high collar. It summoned thoughts of dress uniforms from Navy or Global Police Force, but it was nicer than that, and it came with high black boots. There were a handful of running cars, sighing out silent vaporized oxygen exhaust. They were kept running to let the interiors remain heated, and near the front door of the plaza, a clutch of drivers camped near some gas heaters and umbrellas, drinking warm beverages served by an attendant. Even the servants got a servant at the plaza. Armed police, members of the global police force, stood in front of the door. They both looked like they came from India, as did most members of the GPF. They wore their torsion skirts, long and black like the robes of foreign mystics. They donned the simple version of GPF helmets, not the full face masks, and they both had lances strapped to their backs. The lances obviously weren't charged, but neither was the Mo-Yu. It floated silently 50 feet above the roof of the plaza, reduced to its most peaceful shape, no larger than Grimm's limo. Its hull was a thousand irises and apertures expanding, contracting, and clicking into various chitinous shapes. It issued the sound of a hundred games of dominoes being shuffled and clicked on metal park benches. The name for this thing came from the old Chinese, they had a saying, you fish in troubled water. It ended in the words Mo Yu. So troubled water? Is that the closest thing to defining it? His mother had said it was a term for a squid, which made just as much sense. With everyone speaking common, even the Chinese, it was hard for Grimm to ever know. The Mo Yu morphed and undulated, never the same exact size from one second to the next. 
and it was perpetually ready to blossom with arcs of violent electricity and charge the lances and shielding of every GPF officer here protecting the plaza. Superstition and myth indicated Mo Yu's may be alive. Grimm knew otherwise. He himself had procured plans for them when he was a little younger than Nathaniel was now, and the grateful Bolivar House tech experts assured him there were no biological components. The two door guards eyed only Grimm, someone who clearly was not of this place. Grimm was a man who wasn't dressed in typical plaza dress. He wore an old wool peacoat he got from his grandfather. His hair was a bramble of black with a toss of gray, and it never saw order imposed on its chaos, never met a comb. Jeans, a wrinkled button-up, workman boots, and a satchel rounded him out and made him look at best an academic, at worst a day laborer, but either way, not someone with the clout or the chits to visit the plaza. As Grimm, Nathaniel, and Elise approached, one of the GPF started to advance on Grimm, but the other said something quietly, held a palm out to stay the eager officer and open the doors. Grimm had been recognized, so the hassle was halted. Grimm was rather looking forward to the hassle, though, if he had to be honest about it. The look of shock and horror when someone realized who he was, who his brother was, that he was in the upper echelon of a fifth house. Seeing that look of surprise on people was childishly gratifying and hearkened to something that Grimm's father had taught him at a young age. Appearances could belie the truth of a person, and power didn't always wear a uniform. Good morning, Mr. Bolivar, the smarter cop said directly to Grimm, holding the door wide with an extended arm trying to keep his body as far away from the opening as possible. Nathaniel bumped into the officer, a true spoiled prick maneuver, and walked through first. The admin had made it abnormally wet and cold winter in Southern California this winter. By contrast, the warmth inside the plaza was heavy and tangible, and it made Grimm's glasses steam over for a bit. The smell of food and perfume and flowers filled the air. A pleasant piano nocturne meant to calm trickled through the concourse. The plaza was like an old shopping mall back when America had such things as money. There were dozens of shops, mostly clothing, but also gadgets and books and other baubles, as Elise called them. Thanks to WorldGov and the World Vote, everything in the plaza cost what it did everywhere else. A shirt, one clothing chit. A meal, one food chit. A book, one education chit. And so forth. But the quality was the difference. The shirts in the plaza were finely made of Egyptian cotton. The meals were filling and of exotic ingredients. The books were on the hard-to-find lists, not merely WorldGov propaganda, though that was here in droves. But only families of WorldGov administration classes were allowed inside. All around the world, deviants would sometimes attack administrators and military officers, kidnap their families where they were shopping or schooling or about town. But not at the plaza. Admin was safe here. So in exchange for that daily threat, the administrators got first pick at the better stuff before it made it to the general markets. That was the price owed to them due to the violence of the deviants. The plaza was the inevitable, unerasable nature of power in the human world. Wealth would accrue even in a world with no wealth. Power in a world with no power. Corruption was like a microscopic entity. It could find a way to live in a volcano, or at the ocean's floor, or in the upper atmosphere, or a hunk of space rock. It could lay dormant for a million years until conditions were right for it to blossom and gather. If there was the slightest chance for power to amass, the slightest nook in which it could germinate, humans would find a way to assemble supremacy and wealth. Grimm's father and grandfather built an empire of power and wealth that spanned the entire continent. They built one of the fifth houses, 
the one that oversaw the Americas. Yale ran it now in the wake of their father's death some years back. Grimm had inherited his father's determination and his mother's love of the human race. By contrast, his brother Yale inherited their father's ability to manipulate people and his mother's skill with economics. Grimm and Yale made two radically different sides of the same soul. Just as Elise kept Nathaniel grounded, Grimm kept Yale grounded. Elise walked beside Grimm and asked, Is there anything you need? Family, food, water, shelter. The rest is not a need, Grimm replied, quoting a WorldGov poster that was still popular near shopping centers, even hypocritical ones like the plaza. I'm serious, wise-ass. What shops do you want to visit? I have no agenda, unlike some people I could name, Grimm said. Elise ignored his sarcasm and said, I have to pick up a few things. Why don't you check out the art and we'll meet at the bookstore in 30 minutes? And just like that, she wins the argument, Grimm said as she released his arm. Art and books were his two passions, and though he had no need for another book at the moment, he still liked to walk the aisles. Go look for those gloves you're after and meet us at Brookside in an hour and a half, Elise told Nathaniel, kissing him on the cheek. Nathaniel jogged off with the energy of a 20-year-old pumping through his legs, steam through a valve. Some of his friends from the academy all want new gloves. Commodore Sui was wearing these black gloves when he was at Prospect for a party a week ago, and his friends all thought they were so slick, Elise said. Good to know fashion isn't dead, even if a boot-stepping sort. They walked through the plaza, and Grimm was reminded why he hated the place. The workers in the unpopulated shops were defeated, listless, tired, overworked individuals. They lived their lives hawking wares they themselves didn't get access to. They spent their shifts being belittled by bitchy wives and spoiled kids and self-important husbands. But what made things worse was seeing them come to life when a customer walked in. They went from bedraggled to fabulous, thespians, all of them. The employees were happy and full of bounce, and they laughed while they were insulted by the admin. But on the inside, or when the store was devoid of customers, they were tired. Tired and maybe a little bit scared. They were scared of pissing off the wrong person, and many of them hated WorldGov and its promises of days of plenty in the future. Always in the future, things were better. Science had replaced the hope of religion. Instead of the rapture saving global slaves from the daily toil of Earth with God parting the heavens like a zipper, it was the Lariat. In just five years, the Lariat was finally set to open, and a hundred alien races would pop through it, enriching the lives of humanity, curing diseases, making us equal partners in a galactic government. The Lariat would open. But if sentient aliens were anything like humans, Grimm figured, then our own simple mammalian race would soon be eating scraps, cleaning toilets, and opening doors for unthinkable alien overlords who got the better shirts, exotic meals, and interesting books on a galactic scale. Or humans would be wrapping up in pox-ridden blankets to survive winters made colder by an unknowable and imminent future. Elise led Grimm into the art store, kissed him on the cheek, and walked off. As always, there was one proprietor manning the art store, a tall redhead named Penelope. As Grimm walked into the store, she stood, her back to the entrance, staring at a wall of art. New paintings and photos and projections were on the wall, dozens of them, frames next to frames, still lifes, cityscapes, small boats on lakes, children. Some of it was good, some of it great. As with everything in the plaza, only the best was hanging here. Grimm stopped before he entered the shop and took it in. Penelope looked like an installation of art herself, her back to Grimm, 
her face unseen but lost in the frames hanging before her. She wore a long, plain dress with her hair in a bun above a pale white neck. Clumsy black shoes. If she were an installation, Grimm would call it Melancholy Woman in Olive Drab Looking at Paintings. She stood as if transfixed, as if the world on the other side of the canvas was a better world. A world of beaches and brick lanes with quaint sidewalk bistros. A world where life is better lived. Grimm spied one painting, a quaint thing of an Italian lane in Rome. It was vacant of people, evoking early morning when yeasty smells issued from bakeries. The painting was meant to make people long for that scenario. Instead, it took Grimm to the brutal morning when they escaped from the Maglici house. He was covered in fresh cigar burns, cuts, lashes, head swimming with drugs the Maglicis had injected into his system. Most of his fingers were broken by a tire iron or a strange pointed chrome hammer, but his brother Yale leaned on him as a crutch, Yale's legs having been mangled during his own round of torture. They snaked through the empty streets of Rome that morning, avoiding the Maglici House's members, limping toward a trusted colleague who would smuggle them back to the Americas. That was only three years ago, the last day Grimm was an ambassador for the Maglici House, the day their two houses silently went to war. Now, though, there was peace. Yale got what he wanted from them, stricter tariff laws for the chit trades across the Atlantic, and Grimm was put into a pseudo-family retirement. His life now consisted of reading and shopping and spending time with his niece and nephew. He could get involved in family affairs again anytime he wanted, but just now, he didn't want. Just now, he watched Penelope, who watched the art shop. To Grimm, this girl's soul seemed dimmed by the modern world, like she'd already surrendered. Her life, like so many human lives, was merely a brick down low on a pyramid that could someday reach to the stars and open the lariat. Always the future was better. Penelope was probably a decade younger than Grimm, but like all the Plaza employees, she seemed used up. She should be full of life and love affairs and giggling with girlfriends and going on wine-fueled dating binges. But she was here always, like a sentinel of the art world. Every time Grimm came, she was working. In fact, he couldn't recall ever seeing anyone else working here. That didn't mean she was devoted to the shop. There was no such thing. She didn't earn any more chits doing this than a doctor or a garbage man earned. She was just voted into this position by the world vote, either because she was good at art or selling or some skill that landed her here. Grimm entered the shop, and a censor beeped his presence. Penelope shook her head and turned around like she'd just stepped out of one of the canvases. Mr. Bolivar, good morning, she smiled and closed to him with her hand extended. They shook. Her hand was silky as if she'd just put on moisturizer. It was small and the grip subdued. Good morning, Penelope. It's good to see you. We got a shipment last night. I was just admiring the new arrangement on the wall. Grimm asked, anything worth pointing out? Yes, actually. I'm so glad you came in. We have an exquisite Marlowe that came in last night from the collection that was rescued from Philadelphia before the firebombings. She pointed at the painting of Rome. He shook his head no, realizing instantly that he'd been forceful in his refutation of Rome. Ah, Penelope said. Regardless, I set one piece aside that I'm confident you'll want. Grimm saw a light turn on inside of her. She was excited about whatever she was about to show him. This was rare for her. She was normally restrained and downsold everything to Grimm. She typically didn't like much of what was in the shop and seldom thought it was a proper fit for Grimm. This suddenly transformed Penelope was a thing to behold. 
He could see a tempest in there, a real human soul with passions and loves and history. She wasn't just a shopkeeper trading chits for framed art. She was suddenly not so frumpy. She had naturally bright red hair that she always wore in a bun. It was wild and thin and seemed hard to tame. Her clothes were always basic, the industrial stuff that a single clothing chit would purchase. A workable brown skirt, a thick green sweater, heavy black shoes, no jewelry. She used her chits on something other than fashion and hair products. She even wore glasses, proving she doesn't use her medical chits either or her eyes would have been fixed or replaced by now. Maybe she saved her rations. Maybe she gave them all to a lover. Maybe she didn't care to spend them on anything. Some people were like that, especially Americans trying to burn off generations of global guilt. Then again, maybe she just gave up on living. Penelope came around from the back of the shop holding a landscape. The painting showed the view from the art studio at Prospect, Grimm's family home. This was virtually impossible since no one had been allowed to paint from that particular vantage point since his grandmother died. But it was a familiar brushstroke and color palette. It resonated deeply with Grimm, art that was somehow instantly and always a part of him. This, I believe, is a genuine Lucy Bolivar. Based on the style and waves and the colors she used, I think your grandmother painted this one at Prospect about 60 years ago. Penelope smiled a wide and vibrant smile. She had the mouth of a classical movie star and eyes the color of raw jade. Her pale skin wore freckles, a true ginger, and she bit her bottom lip as she waited for Grimm's response. There was no angle here, no scam, grift, or sales technique. Penelope was truly happy at getting this piece and giving it to Grimm. Grimm grabbed the painting, a fairly small thing, and admired it. It was the view from his grandmother's art studio, just up the hall from his own bedroom. She must have painted it shortly after the war, just as Prospect was built by WorldGov. What thoughts she thought. How transformed this world must have been. She was living with the new knowledge of alien races and a gate to visit them, and she chose to paint waves and cliffs of the Pacific Ocean instead. Grimm set the painting on the counter and hugged Penelope. He hugged her hard, heart to heart. He realized as he smelled the basic soap used in her hair that he was being totally inappropriate. He realized he was actually hugging his grandmother, Penelope merely a proxy. You are an absolute angel, Penelope. Anything at all that I can do for you. I owe you a lot more than one aesthetic chit. Penny, please, not Penelope. And nothing. Just the look on your face made it worth it. How'd you get it? Where was it? A private collector in Miami. She had a thing for Kandinsky, I think, and I happened to get one shipped to me. All art is tracked, of course, and I found she had a surviving Bolivar and arranged a swap. You went through a lot of trouble. Just a day at work, a phone call, a couple transit chits, and no, you don't owe me a thing. As I said, the happiness permeating your aura right now was worth everything I spent on it. They chatted about art. They both hated the post-Earth movement's relentless focus on painting outer space scenes and riffs on exobiology. Penny was a different person than Penelope, and Grimm liked this version of her. They made arrangements to have the painting sent to the limo. He gave Penny his card and insisted she call if she needed anything at all. Anything. He reiterated that he owed her one, and his wrist beeped to tell him he was supposed to meet Elise at the bookstore. Suddenly, forced to decide between a day with Penny surrounded by art and time with Elise surrounded by books, Grimm's heart was torn. But as ever, family won out. More importantly, Grimm was finally going to learn what Elise's endgame was. He was going to discover why she wanted him to come to the plaza so damned badly. 
The front half of the bookstore was lined with e-stations where customers could download books to various devices, and the rest were paper books. Print was more popular than ever under WorldGov since it encouraged reading in all forms, and recycled paper had a smaller and easily biodegradable footprint than electronics. Elise wasn't there yet, so Grimm walked through the WorldGov section. The revised history of the human race, the galactic treatises of the Kel Dekromasha, all the Xenobio stuff. He paused at a copy of Accounts of a Noble Resistance. There was an elaborate end cap display with a new edition that touted a prologue written by Eleanor Gray's daughter. He'd studied the book, of course, all through the Academy, who on earth hadn't. But this prologue was intriguing to him. He opened it and scanned a few lines. It was the first war whose goal was not to acquire more property, nor to accrete power or wealth or technology. It was instead the first war to liberate all of these things and give them to all of the human race. Though in those early throes of war, there was much resistance, including the famous and often romanticized guerrilla cell my mother was part of on that cold California coast. In the Americas and Europe, the fighting was the worst, the deviance most blatant, but it existed worldwide. The wealthiest nations had the hardest time with the notion of true capital equalization. It meant they would downgrade their entire way of life so others, foreigners, would improve theirs. Moreover, people assumed this was another Reich, another regime run by another Caesar, another Stalin, another Hitler. How could they not assume this? It was the pattern for all of human history. But WVW was not a human war, was it? It was a liberation of our entire race, the passing down of this wisdom of ancient peoples and technologies and fantastical civilizations shuffled to humanity through the minds of the messengers. My mother, Eleanor Gray, said something to me toward the end of her life still living in Morro Bay where so much of her WVW deviance occurred. If I could transport here that little, foolish, scared, violent thing that I was during the war, she'd have never fought as she fought. Surrender was the wisest thing I ever did in my life. I know that now, as I see the world a paradise for all, and I see that the lariat is real, and it tightens, and it is a miracle. Grimm shut the book. He didn't know where his copy was, and hearing that one quote from Eleanor in the prologue made him long to read the prose again, hear her tales of the world vote war as the west coast of what was once the United States of America fell to what was once China. He held the book up to the man working the counter. Grimm indicated he was taking this copy of Accounts of a Noble Resistance. It was a permanently free book for any citizen, and slid it into his satchel. He stepped deeper into the bookstore and came to one of the little walked corners of the place, the hard-to-find section. These books cost dozens of education chits just for one copy, so most people avoided them. They'd download an e-version for one ration and be just as happy with the prose. On the shelf, Grimm saw a Faulkner and a Hemingway, a volume of Dickinson and a Nabokov. They were all imprints from 150 years ago. He fingered the Nabokov, Pale Fire. He'd never heard of that one, so he took it from the shelf and kept walking. Grimm moved to the science fiction section, a genre that had grown passé and undesirable since all the dreams of past futurists were soon going to burst into daily life or be dashed as bad prophecy on the opposite side of our sun when the lariat opened. Elise rounded a shelf with a graceful flourish, smiled when she saw Grimm. She stood with a woman in her fifties. The woman was Hispanic, short and thin. Unlike most shopkeepers he had seen today, she acted neither hollow nor eager to serve an admin. She was flat out desperate. 
Sir, she said rather too loudly for a bookstore, and clutched his hands, her palms sweaty and shaking. Grim looked at Elise sideways, exhaled through his nose, made sure his back was straight and composed. This woman, she was Elise's angle. She was why she needed him to come into the plaza today. This woman needed a favor from the bull of her house, and one that Elise couldn't grant. One, Grim assumed, that only Yale could grant, or Grim, if he chose to angle his own brother. Grim said, ma'am, I'm not sure what my niece told you I could. My daughter is a good girl, sir. She isn't a deviant. This boy, though, this Hugo, who she started to fall in love with, he's bad news. I tried. I tried to keep them apart, but I'm at work all day making sure citizens have access to information. Informed citizens are valuable citizens, the woman said, laying it on thick as she could. He was arrested, involved in hateful propaganda, caught red-handed, sir, guilty as you like. He'd been sent off now to do pressure manufacturing under the sea, but Sophie? My Sophie, she's still being held. They haven't ruled her a deviant yet, and they say if she just had an academy permit, they wouldn't need to call a vote. She's young, sir, just my baby. She'd be a good worker anywhere. She doesn't have enough of a tally to get upvoted, so she has to have a permit. She's no deviant, sir, no deviant. Grim held up a finger to silence the woman. She deflated, fell to her knees and buried her face in her hands. She was hushed but weeping, her lungs pumping regret and worry to and from the world. She had learned long ago, Grim suspected, to only cry silently, to not let the admin know of it, lest she be removed from her post through a vicious downvote provoked by the clientele of the plaza. Can I talk to you? Grim said to Elise, walking to the end of the aisle to put as many spines of books filled with stories less tragic than this one between him and this woman. Elisa's jaw was tight, showing bone and muscle. Her eyes were dilated, and she folded her arms and said, I know her daughter, Sophie. She's this great kid. She comes to the kitchens just to help, not for food, not to try and get up votes. She just wants to feed people and participate. She reads, studies tactics. She wants to go to the academy. And this fuckhead Hugo is a couple of years older than her and cool and rebellious. She thinks she's in love and now she's on the verge of living in a camp. She'll never get upvoted with this on her record. And this is my problem? Millions of people live in camps, Elise. A camp, Graham, Elise said. She used his real name. He was suddenly Graham, not Uncle Grim. Don't act like camps are fine. She'll be ground to powder and used to make their bread and you know it. Another human sacrifice on the mountain of bodies it takes for WorldGov to climb up and turn on their goddamn gate. She paused for impact, and Grimm said, Your uncle won't allow it. There's a strategy to the passes Yale grants, always an endgame. Ours is not a philanthropic family. Nothing is free with us. You can talk your brother into anything, Elise reminded him. He listens to you. To you, Graham, as in to no one else on this awful planet. The rigid intensity left her jawline. Grim could tell that her heart was breaking. A little innocent girl named Sophie was about to be sentenced to a ruined life because of the flaws of world vote. The girl's mother sucked in a wet breath and could be heard issuing the faintest groan. Her fists gripped at the industrial carpet until her nails were white. Sophie Arnez, the woman said. Sophie Arnez. She repeated it like a mantra, gradually falling more quiet with each utterance, the fire going a little more dim. I'll be in the car, Grim said. He found it easier than saying no, but just as effective. He put the Nabokov on a shelf, not wanting to deal with checking out and putting on a show. Grim exited the bookstore and turned right to head for the parking lot. He had planned to stop for a pound of coffee while in the plaza, but the mood left him. 
A naval captain and someone Grimm recognized from the advocate's staff walked by with girls who had to be their mistresses. Graham, the staffer said with a wave and came over to him. This is Captain Stevens, he said, introducing the officer, but acting as if the girls were non-entities. The ladies fell back into an orbit of each other and made small talk. They were young and beautiful and had fine clothes that showed off long legs and round breasts. The staffer continued, Stevens was just appointed as the CO of the Aerial Transit Hub, and I'm giving him a tour around town. I'm Graham Bolivar. Welcome to town, Captain. Have you met my brother? He's an excellent host and is known to give record-setting city tours. So I've been told, the captain laughed, elbowing his colleague in the ribs. He stiffly reached into a pocket and pulled out his tabula. May I, he asked? Grin held up his wrist and the captain tapped his tabula against the skin. Grim pulled his shirt sleeve until he could see Stevens, Arthur, Captain, World Navy, and then a string of contact information printed in freckles. I'll see my brother in a couple of hours, and I'll be sure he gets your number. He'll be thrilled to meet a new captain in the region. Grim noted that Elise had left the bookstore, and the mother was standing at the front counter, eyes dark, mouth a hollow gape. The mother forced muscles in her face to smile as a young couple dressed in admin wear entered the bookstore. Elise walked up to Grimm, eyes a tempest, but her lipstick was freshly applied and she radiated charm for the captain and the administrator. She silently handed Grimm a sack. He looked inside and saw the Nabokov novel he had abandoned. You should come out with us, Captain Stevens said to Grimm. He nodded towards Elise and said, be sure to bring your mistress along. Grimm, no longer trying to mask the contempt, said, I have no interest in socializing with you, Captain, and I never will, and neither does my niece. You can anticipate my brother's call within the evening. Grimm turned and walked away. Elise stayed back and charmed the men, trying to undo whatever social damage Grimm had just done with his rather non-Bolivar outburst. Elise caught up with Grimm, heels clacking on the marble floors of the plaza. Grimm said, so that was your game. Lure me to the bookstore and get me to dole out a permit. You wouldn't have done it otherwise, Elise admitted. You're the only one I know who can help a girl, a good girl, live a real life instead of be chiseled away to nothing by the gov. You just have to sign a piece of paper. It takes a slight bit more than just signing a piece of paper. Hands need greasing, favors need passing along, Yale is a miser, and academy permits are expensive commodities. There is no such thing as expense, Elise said, mocking a world gov mantra. You could be a great man if you wanted to. You could change everything around here, Grim. I don't mean that in some new world democratic horseshit sense either, like we can all change the world. I mean you, Graham Bolivar, are one of the hundred most powerful human beings on the planet, and your heart is good, and you love and can be loved. You, my uncle, this man I adore, could personally change the entire world. It's more the pity that you can't see how much it needs changing. I hope you enjoyed the story of Grimm. Um, it's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, we talk about that on one of the sit-down episodes when Zach asks me who my favorite character out of all of them is. For some reason, it tends to be Grimm. I enjoy writing his sections the best. But um, if you want to hear more about uh, our conversations about the chapters, as always, you can uh, join us as a patron. And you can uh, select that tier where you'll get the sit-downs every week. We do one for every single chapter. Zach Smith is the host, and uh, he and Brent and myself talk about the chapter. Sometimes, as you probably know by now, I just have to remain silent 
and wistfully stare in the distance while these two theorize because I don't want to do spoilers and give things away. But it is great fun. We really enjoy doing them and we hope you enjoy listening to them as well. Um, we are a Podbelly original and you can go to Podbelly to find all sorts of great podcasts to listen to. Um, one of them is Graveyard Tales and another is The Piecast. So go and find those and other ones, including the Sofa King podcast, which is the podcast that myself, Brent and Brad Taylor all do. Um, it is not safe for work, but it is a research based uh, comedy podcast uh, with a lot of swearing and inappropriate uh, language and thought content. But it's great fun um, and it's educational. So check out Sofa King podcast if that sounds um, in any way interesting. Uh, visit us at Mindframe Podcast. Um, please consider uh, buying some of our merchandise, our shirts, our mugs, etc. Um, our books are there. My novel, 181 Pine, is for sale um, on the website, and you can find Zach's books on there as well if you're looking for something good to read. And as always, on social media, you can uh, find us there. Join, like, subscribe, and most importantly, share. That makes a huge impact and spreads the, the word of, the, of Mindframe so you can initiate your friends into the, the glorious world uh, that we are all inhabiting here with our ears. So on Facebook, you can go to Mindframe Podcast to find our official Facebook page. There is also a group. If you search for Mindframe Podcast in the groups, you can find a group where people share ideas and post thoughts and memes and be funny and sort of have built up a community um, of Mindframe. On Instagram, we are the Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are the Mindframe Pod. And on Reddit, we are r slash Mindframe Podcast. So um, we hope you enjoy these episodes. We hope to see you next week. And as always, the Lariat is closing.